Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 110 for September 20th, 2007. Listener Feedback 24. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site. Looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds on Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. It's time for Security Now, everybody's favorite security podcast. In fact, the number one tech podcast in all the nation, according to the Podcast <laughs> Awards. Congratulations, Thanks Steve to Gibson. our listeners, yes. You're getting your award next week. Yes, in fact, I have a note here on for next week's podcast to, to mention that I'll be picking up the award the following day after that podcast comes out. And, and I had a note here to thank our listeners again. So you've given yeah. me a perfect opportunity to do we'll so. We'll just keep know. thanking them until next year when you'll win again. That's uh, <laughs> my plan, as a matter of fact. So if you're going to be in Ontario, California on the 28th, is it? Yeah. Yep. Of yep. September, uh, go to the podcast uh, awards. That They're usually at the towards the end of the day, so it'll be five, I think. Yeah, it's between 4 and 5.30, they said. Okay. And for what it's worth, the show is open and free to the public for the you know the random walk around the aisles and see what's going on in podcasting land. Yeah, so if, costs- if you want to learn about how to podcast, this is a place to do it. Everybody's there. Yep. So, uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to scare you. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's definitely, it's definitely a, a great fun. I will not be there. I'm going to a, a different expo that following month, and I have... Uh, actually, commitments uh, on the 27th in Vancouver, so I can't get to uh, Ontario. But I wish you the best. I'm sorry I can't be there to applaud you, but I'll be there in spirit. Ah, well, we, you and I have done it the, the prior two. That is the first yeah, two yeah. of those. When, I, went, the, when I won, you were there. So, uh, well, I think we're both winning for this, so I feel good about it. Oh, yeah. This yeah. wouldn't be here. This wouldn't be happening, Leo, were it not for you. Okay, so, that's, yeah. you know, I'll take a that little, fact I'll take a never credit. escapes me. I'll take a little credit. Well, and vice versa, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you should take a lot of credit. <laughs> so this is a listener feedback episode. We've got lot, 13 questions, 12 good ones and one wacky one. <laughs> yeah, the wacky one. I, 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 We're getting such fun feedback. I had a hard time literally pulling myself away from my email client this morning when I was going through these. I just I did not want to stop reading them. But we got one that was just so bizarro. I thought, well, it's perfect that it'll be number 13. So it'll be the 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 the, the wacky 13th one. Um, we have a bunch of errata. Well, have several bits of errata that I wanted to share with everyone. First of all, I wanted to just do a shout out, as I think they use the term, to the two little bots on Mars. Spirit and opportunity. Oh, I, uh, what, tell me about this. I guess I haven't been following it. What's going well, on? They had what was originally planned to be a three-month mission. They are now both in their forty-third month. Holy cow! They are still going strong. Oh, I remember these guys. Yeah, they weren't supposed to last very long. Right. Spirit and opportunity were, were were these two bots, and I mean they landed literally forty three months ago, bounced around in their little balloon landing pods, and then unfolded and came to life. Um, and I mean, and they've just been doing fantastic science for 
far longer than anyone expected them to last. There was there was a big global dust storm last month, which obscured the sun and brought the power levels that they were able to uh, obtain through their solar cells down to a very low level. And the guys at JPL were worried that that might do them in. So they, they put them to sleep into a very, very low power mode where they stopped doing any science. They just sat there and they only sort of pinged their radios um, as 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 little as necessary well the 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 um the storm passed they did have a bunch of sand on their solar panels but some wind picked up and blew that off and they just took off rolling around again <laughs> is that and, great and it's just so cool you know just to these two little bots roaming around mars uh just continuing to go far far longer than they were expected to last and i mean there there are all kinds of like there was a long wish list of things that that NASA wanted you know I mean if they had their dreams these things would be able to be done and the bots are just tackling them one after the other just sort of you know cruising around yeah well good for them that's just so cool good for them I'm I'm, um, I'm proud of them yeah so I just wanted to give them a little shout out we'll uh, I'll kind of keep my eye on them and let our listeners know uh if uh you know they continue uh, trucking along or if something finally you know i mean i would think that if they fell into a hole or something or you know i mean like <laughs> got tipped over that'd be the end of end of the story but you know they're they're just they're doing a great job it just uh, that's called over engineering and it's the way to go i think it's fantastic that's really great um many 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 listeners many comment many <laughs> commented that the uh, the idea that I talked about last week that I had come up with for storing the state of of e-commerce transactions in a variable that I gave back to the browser each time was something that Microsoft has offered in their ASP.net suite for a long time there was an article in 2002 that i found just to give it some sort of date reference so you know and, and this is called view state so i just wanted to acknowledge all of the many 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 listeners who said hey steve you know cool idea but you didn't invent it well i don't think you claim to invent it i mean no it's the no, it's the idea behind cookies in general it, well, exactly, and or in behind saving state, and right. I just wanted to talk about about you know the solution I found. Um, several other people wrote. In fact, I have one one of our Q and A guys. I have a comment about about his approach. Uh, so we, we'll talk about it a little bit more. But I just wanted to acknowledge that you know, yes, I I didn't I didn't intend to claim that I had invented it. It's just, I mean, it's I mean, I invented it for myself. But it's sort of the nature of. The, the question of what's invention and what's engineering, which is why, you know, patents are, are so questionable, is some things are just the way you solve a problem right. if you're, right. you know, schooled in the art. Um, anyway, so I wanted to acknowledge all of those uh, people. Also, I mentioned you know, when we were talking about the um, the personal identity protection, the PIP program offered by Verisign through their uh, their Verisign Identity Program VIP. I talked about how it was my hope that at some point in the future, the the wacky URL that we had right now, like you know Steve.Gibson.Pip.VerisignLabs.com, would be made shorter. Well, 
the technical guy at Verisign listens to the podcast, uh, or at least he does now. And, he, and so he dropped me in a note saying, hey, Steve, I wanted to make sure you knew that, you know, oh, the open ID system allows something talk, called a delegation. And I had originally talked about that when we discussed open ID. And th the idea was that a user that is an end user who wanted to use open ID could put on a any web page that they control that is their own blog page their own myspace page or whatever any page that they have control over they're able to put a tag on the page such that they refer to their own page as their identity and then the server pulls that page looks for the tag and then uses the contents of the tag as the target for their identity server. And so the point of that is that, in fact, I could use something like grc.com to replace that entire long nightmare, steve.gibson.pip.verisignlabs.com. So I could log on to an open ID site just using grc.com. Right. That's the whole idea of open ID. Exactly. And right. then that site would go to grc.com, look for the tag, find in buried in the tag steve.gibson.pip.verisignlabs.com, and then go there in order to start the validation process. Yeah, that's so what I, just, I do. I use leoville.com as my base open ID page. Well, your code's, the code's sitting there. I, if, <laughs> if I thought of it, I would have <laughs> mentioned it. That's kind of the premise of open ID is if you have a site, you can do that. Exactly. If you don't have a site, you can't do it. And then we have a listener in Toronto, or who has returned to Toronto, uh, Michael Walker. Uh, he says he was recently flying back to Toronto from London, and he wrote, quote, I thought that I would, that, I, I'm sorry, I thought that you would like to know that while on Air Canada flight from London, England, back to Toronto, there was an ad for Nerds On Sight. Oh, that's neat. It was at least a full minute ad on the in-flight television. And he, so he says, well, on the screen, you can see the nerd working on the computer. But on the computer screen and very clearly seen is, and he puts in parens, wait for it, dot, 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 spin right. Uh -huh. Way too cool. That's neat. So, so I, I really got a kick out of that. Uh, apparently, the nerds on site guys have an ad that runs on Air Canada's in-flight TV and... They figure, well, what are we going to put on the screen? Well, let's put Spinrite on the screen. Well, they're proud of the fact that they offer a license to Spinrite. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Heck, as long as we're talking about it, let me mention uh, Nerds on Site. They're proudly uh, sponsoring this show, as they have for some time now. I think it's, it's close to a year. Nerds on Site is an association of uh, IT professionals, people who uh, are working in the business. The idea is you, uh, you have your business, you have your leads, and you're... You're an independent contractor, but you're not in business by yourself, just for yourself. So you focus on what you love, and the nerds help you with all sorts of things. In fact, if you don't, I love this. If you're having a problem with something that you can't solve, you have special access to all the other nerds, and they help each other out, which is kind of a, a great idea. It's a guild, really, in the same way that the Pixel Core is a guild. Nerds on site is all over the world, in Canada, U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, and now Singapore. They have a University of Nerdology where you can tune your expertise in all sorts of areas. Systems, architecture, design, software development, on-site IT, desktop support, Soho, and residential IT. 
But they need more nerds. We need more nerds. If you'd be interested in finding out more, especially if you're the type of nerd who likes to troubleshoot and tear apart, rebuild your own system in your spare time. I mean, you're really into this stuff. And no matter what your you know focus is in your business, whether it's PC, Mac, Cisco, Oracle, if you're a fix-it technician, a website designer, I really want to encourage website designers to find out about this too. Programmers, project managers, sales training, uh, security experts, antivirus, all of that. Go to IWantToBeANerd.com to find out more. IWantToBeANerd.com. You can register for a nerds-only meeting in your area today. It really is a great way to build your business, to grow your business, and you could drive the Nerdmobile. Okay? <laughs> Just, it's possible. They also have site licenses for things like Spinrite, uh, for Astaro, which is great. They're an Astaro-certified provider. So there's really a lot of uh, a value add to this as well. I want to be a nerd.com. We thank them for their support of security now. So we've got 13 questions. I suppose we should uh, get started. Do you want to, do you have a spin right uh, anecdote you'd like to recount or actually I do. I found one from a month ago that sort of follows on what we talked about last week. Um, remember that last week we had a listener who wrote in saying that he had used spin right in wine in the in the uh, under linux on the the windows oh, yeah. emulator and it worked and it worked well this has been taken to an extreme now by eric grieve um who wrote on august 21st he says hi Stephen leo i've been a spinrite user for quite a while and it has saved my bacon more than once that's neat. whenever i buy a new hard drive i plug it in and let spinrite have at it i seem to be addicted to buying hard drives so this happens more often than you'd think. <laughs> that's good, though. I mean, that's that's who should have spin right. Is anybody who uses a lot of hard drives? That's that's really where you get your value out of it. Well, yes, and in fact, I mean, it's maybe it's a holdover from the old days when I used to buy hard drives, and the first thing I would do was run Spinrite, right? Because back then, hard drives were you dumb. Had to. Yeah, they, they didn't have all this brain power that they do now, which I think you know, moderates the need to run Spinrite on a brand new drive. Steve. Although, you know, I do. <laughs> this is your business here. I do. <laughs> don't anyway. tell them they don't need it. So he says, I just bought a new drive again, and I thought I'd try something new. You see, I've also been experimenting with virtualization using the free uh-huh. VMware server uh-huh. on Linux. Uh-huh. While looking around the options... I saw that I could give full control of a physical hard drive to a virtual machine. They warn that this is advanced. Do watch out. Uh, <laughs> and may be dangerous uh, since both virtual and real OSs could use the drive at the same time if misconfigured. He says, I figured I'd give this a try with Spinrite. And I love what it, he went all the way. He says, so I configured a new virtual machine, gave it the Spinrite ISO file. Oh, there's a good idea. Isn't that cool? As its CD drive image. So it's tiny. And, yep. And full control of the new drive as its sole hard drive. Oh. And he says in parens, the other ones being all in use by the Linux system. This means says, I could use it on the Mac. Yes, actually. I uh, like this. And he says, making sure to turn off all caching and snapshotting. He says, I'm happy to report Spinrite worked flawlessly in its own little world as I was using the real system normally. Wow. Um, I That's just a wanted great to, solution. 
Isn't that cool? He said, I just wanted to let you know about this maybe unusual use and ask if you knew of any caveats with using this method for testing my drive. Thanks for the great software and podcast. Eric from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Huh. So, so you're right, Lee. I mean, it does mean that in VMware, and remember that the VMware server is free. That On you PCs. For exactly for yeah. for PCs. Well, and what what about for Linux? No, uh, yeah, maybe it is for Linux. Yeah, Probably, I, check. I would imagine it yeah. would be not for Mac, unfortunately. Anyway, that that you can run Spinrite in a VM, and the other cool thing That's about this is idea. since Spinrite is an assembler, and all it's really doing is data transfer. I mean, it's not making intensive use of the processor. Most of the time, it sits around doing nothing. It's the controller, just, really, you know, that's work, doing all the work. Exactly. So yeah. you're issuing a read or a write. So that means that it's not going to suck up a lot of your machine if you want to be running Spinrite on a drive that you've given it exclusive access to sort of in the background. I mean, it's not something that would slow down your foreground use because Spinrite's not sucking up much of your processor. Yeah. Do you ju- are the is the only call you make uh, to int thirteen? Uh, uh, is there still an int thirteen? Yes. Is, is that what you use? Yes, I use the the int thirteen BIOS, which is em- and the BIOS is fully emulated by VMware. In fact, you can sort of see the little BIOS flash screen start up or splash screen start up when you initiate a, a virtual machine. And the other cool thing is that since this is just DOS. It doesn't need gigabytes of RAM. In fact, it doesn't right. even need megabytes of RAM. It needs kilobytes. You could, yes, you could give it 640K, a 640K virtual machine, and it would be just, I mean, it would be absolutely happy running in a 640K virtual machine. So it wouldn't even take up much of your RAM. I mean, less than an app would. Oh, this is really good. So I'm going to make, what I'll do is I'll make a, a VMware virtual machine that's a Spinrite machine. Obviously, yep. you can't distribute it because it's a commercial program, but I can keep that and, and, and use that whenever I need to check a check a, spin, a, a drive. Just yes. pop the drive in, and boom, there I go. Wow, that's and, great. And, and give, yeah, exactly, give the drive it to It has to be VM. full access, yeah, right. Yeah. Yep, in order to have full physical direct access to it, but then, you know, it'll work. Very cool. Coolness impersonified, impersonified, <laughs> impersonated. I don't know what that is. Whatever we're talking about. Whatever it is. All right, let's get to our question. I have them in front of me in my hot little hand. 13 good questions for you, Steve. Are you ready? Well, 12 good ones and one wacky one. So. <laughs> you got your thinking cap on? <laughs> Starting with Kevin in California. He's asking about uh, why we don't do Security Now in other audio formats. I've been listening to Security Now for about a year. I was wondering if you're considering making an Og Vorbis version of it he uses open source software every day and he's trying to distance himself from proprietary formats like mp3 or wma uh he, he points out that aug is unpatented royalty free delivers superior quality mp3 more info and encoders are available at ziff.org thanks for your time i get this question all the time and so i wanted to voice it and and have you answer it for we us, do and uh, you know uh, the only podcast we do two podcasts in uh, multiple formats uh one is twit which for historic reasons and i deeply regret these by the way we do high, medium, and low MP3. We do an AAC version. We do an AUG version. Um, and it's a pain in the butt. It actually adds probably doubles the amount of time it takes to produce the podcast. Um, and I'm frankly thinking of phasing those out. Uh, we also do... Now, Floss, we do in two versions. One is MP3 and one is AUG. And the reason we do AUG is because many of our listeners on uh, Floss Weekly are Linux users. And they they can't use an MP3 
player without uh, signing a license, which many of them are unwilling to do. So we do, and Mad Dog pointed this out, so we do an AUG version of it. I really don't want to, the reason we use MP3 is it is every player plays it. Very few players play AUG. Uh, almost always you're going to be playing it on your computer. And it just adds considerably. We're already producing a high and low version and ad for, and ad free versions we produce of this show. Um, and it's just, uh, it adds considerably to our production costs and time. So, right, it makes total sense, Leo. When I look at the the number of downloads for the AUG versions of uh, other podcasts, it's it's in the hundreds. I mean, you know, Twit, which has something like one hundred fifty thousand downloads a week, there's hundreds of AUG downloads. It's it's just. A lot of work for a very small number of people. A very little return on the amount of work it would take. And, and also, I mean, as you said, most of what people are doing, I'm sure, is not listening to these things on their computer, although certainly some are. But, but the vast majority of people are using, you know, podcasting in the, in, you know, in, in the original iPod podcasting mode where they dock their, their hardware and it downloads into the hardware and all the hardware out there plays MP3s. Right. So I just I chose the lingua franca. I, Kevin, I understand what you're saying, and, and you're right. It, I would prefer. I'm not a fan of proprietary formats, um, and MP3 is not is a technically a proprietary format, although it's in such wide use that it's kind of that that that's kind of moot. Um, I just can't uh, add the extra time. And I know he's going to say, "Oh, you can write a script, and you can automatically do it." And uh, in fact, I you know I have scripts to do it. Uh, but then they have to be tagged, and that has to be done by hand, and they have to be uploaded, and we have to find storage for it. And uh, it's just, I'm sorry, it's just not going to happen. In fact, um, I wasn't doing a low-quality version until Steve asked us for a, a dial-up version, and I agree. That, right. you know, most, Almost all the other podcasts are one version only, MP3 at 64 kilobits. And it is it so it is the case that all of these players that are playing MP3 format, they're sending a little a little royalty check no. back to the mp3 gods somewhere? no there's a there the rules are complicated and unknown fraunhofer owns the uh and fraunhofer was acquired i think by lucent and it's very complicated um they invented it and they own the rights to it and if you make there i can't remember what the rules are there's a, a certain length and blah 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 and it goes on and on and on um so it's complicated it's it is encumbered it is not a free and open license free but so so, so i don't for example, know i think i think for instance um, uh, you know w uh, Win, uh, winamp for instance probably pays a, a, a mp3 license and that's why a lot of you see a lot of uh, software that's for audio editing doesn't support mp3 directly so interesting yeah you, you, it, it's kind of people act as if it's uh open and it's not so if you go to if you want to read all about it, go to mp3licensing.com. Thompson now owns the license to it, and you can read all about the cost of it. <laughs> and it, in fact, the codec is a buck twenty-five a unit or ninety thousand dollars one time only for the decoder. So you know, but I don't. But I think there are rules about who has to pay for it and so forth. Interesting. And uh, you know, ultimately, we may be forced into a situation where we have to stop using MP3. In you know, the right to distribute MP3 encoded data has another license and i you know it's, but it's, these are okay these must be patents right yes and so they're not going to last forever right thank goodness so you know just like the old limpel ziv compression right where you know i mean it that's now patent. that's right yeah yep that's now in the public domain so it seems to me at some point probably before this gets any worse it'll end up being finally free and then you know linux people will be able to get mp3 
files and players and everything. Yeah. Well, and they can now. So, it, you know, it's it's more about purist purism than it is anything else. Yep. Yep. Um, and I'm sorry, I just have to be pragmatic. Uh, and I understand, Kevin, I completely understand. I get this request fairly frequently, but not, but when I look at the numbers, not that many <laughs> truth is, you know, a lot of people talk the talk, but very few walk the walk. It's very few people actually download the AUG versions. Uh, question two, an anonymous, an anonymous listener complains, comments that GRC's redesigned feedback form is not screen reader friendly. Uh, what about that? Boy, this is yep. complaint central today. Well, yes, I wanted to respond to that because uh, he's right. That, but unfortunately, he's right by design. That is to say, when I when I when I took the form off the bottom of the Security Now page and gave it its own location, and just to remind our listeners, it's grc.com/feedback. Um, what I was what I was trying to do was to eh, moderately obscure it from spam bots we had this problem where that that page had attracted some spam bots and it was it it had begun getting spammed just by bots that were filling in the form my guess is that nobody deliberately targeted some specific bot at the form that is i don't think a bot was designed or scripted to send me spam i wasn't getting that much but what must happen is that there are just bots out there in the same way that search engines are crawling around the web looking for forms and going oh do i recognize the field names on this form if so they dump their spam in and push the button and whoever it is who's reading it gets spammed which is really annoying and i and you know this may be a variation on like the blogging spam bots that 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 put um uh, spams on blogs. So my sense was, okay, I don't think we're a high value target. I didn't want to inconvenience our users by requiring them to do a captcha. So I figured I'm going to just sort of eh, make it less obvious that this is an email submission form by moving the labels of the fields from text into images. You know, not a big uh, you know, not a big, super secure thing to have done, but all the spam is gone for now, and it just solved the problem, and I'm not needing to ask our users to jump through hoops by figuring out, you know, um, you know a, a CAPTCHA every single time they want to submit something. But so if I they're wanted- blind, it doesn't... They can't see it with their screen. And that's the problem. Well, and here's the point. What um, He says it's not screen reader friendly, and that's precisely the point. <laughs> that's who we because don't, you know, to yeah. be screen reader friendly would right. be bot reader friendly. So if you put sig- alt tags in, for instance, which makes it screen reader friendly, you exactly. can still use the image, but then the bot could read it. Exactly. The same things that the screen reader would key on in order to allow it to be friendly uh, to them would make it similarly friendly to bots. And so it's, again, if we start getting spam on it, I'll do something else. But um, unfortunately, I did have to move it away from being screen reader friendly because I wanted it to be moderately bot hostile. Uh, there's always trade-offs. Yep. Jim Wilson in Southeast Kentucky. Found, and, I, and I'm sorry for those uh, for our, our blind listeners. And I, I know we have quite a few. Um, you could. Uh, is there any way around that? Can, can they send you an email? Um, 
they could certainly send this email and, and it'll get sent to me. Um, or if, if they, if there's any way for them to look at, well, I mean, this is, I mean, it's, I don't know, uh, to have someone look at the form and tell them what the fields are, yeah. then once they know, then everything would work. change. Exactly. I'm not dynamically scrambling things up. I'm not changing anything. Well, tell around. us, what are the fields just for now so they can make, jot, jot them down? Do you have it in front uh, of you? I mean, is it grc.com slash security now? No, it's just slash feedback, right? Yeah. 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 So let me, I'll read them out to you. I'll be your screen reader. So the, so if you do it by tabbing, the first tab will be to the subject. Second tab will be to the body of your message. Third tab is your name. Fourth tab is location. Fifth tab is email. And then there's a button which you can read, which says, send us your thoughts. Yeah. So subject, body, name, location, and email. Just make a note of that. And uh, when you go to security now, or I'm sorry, grc.com slash feedback, hit tab once, you go to subject, and hit tab twice. You know, the second time it's body, name, location, email. That should work. Perfect. There you go. And it doesn't change. And we're sorry about that. That's, you know, that's, there's a reason for it, though. It's not unconscious. Jim Wilson in Southeast Kentucky found an eBay CAPTCHA cracker. It's an add-on for Firefox. <laughs> great, great. I've been a Security Now listener since around 77 and have just found this Firefox add-on I thought you might find interesting. It solves eBay's CAPTCHA issue. It's add-on 4381. Yep, I, I, I checked it out and it looks like it's legitimate. It uh, th- There's a, a word back from the Mozilla developers who looked at it and sort of are vouching for it. They They say, yes. You know, it looks to us like this thing works. And what does it I just, do? I just got a kick out of it. Um, it literally, when you go to log on to eBay, eBay now, along with asking for your eBay user ID and password, gives you a CAPTCHA in order to make logging on more difficult. Well, somebody got annoyed by that. and Vladuz. They, <laughs> and, they, and they created an add-on that recognizes where you are and decodes the CAPTCHA on the fly oh. and automatically fills in oh. the CAPTCHA challenge box. Wow. If they can do that in Zool, it mustn't be too hard. In fact, the developer says this is only a proof of concept of how insecure eBay's CAPTCHA is. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe may, Maybe eBay is doing something dumb like they're putting the... An easily de-obfuscated uh, link that actually has the CAPTCHA code in the link. I mean, they might, I don't know that it's actually, you know, reading and doing an OCR number on the image. There might be some other thing that eBay is doing where looking at the text of the page, you're able to to determine what the CAPTCHA equivalent text is i mean i i didn't look at it that much but i just thought that was a real kick that you know we've talked about captcha and cracking and here's an add-on that just says ah i mean you know you use firefox and it just fills it in for you i, I wonder how it works that's amazing i mean they must wow i'll have to look at the source code at some point mike shaver as you say from the uh, mozilla foundation and i know mike great guy says we check the source code it's harmless doesn't do anything to you. <laughs> eBay may want to fix its CAPTCHA. <laughs> Brian Clark in the UK had an interesting malicious JPEG question. He uh, points out that we've talked about how a, a malformed JPEG uh, can can trigger uh, a, a Trojan horse. He says, and that malware would get squished when it's resized or otherwise manipulated. 
He says, is there any way that in uh, in general use, resizing, etc., malware could evolve due to random due to random changing of the contents when resizing, or is it not that sort of a compromise? I was just wondering if malware or bad effects could come about in this way, or would files have to be purposefully grafted to behave as malware? Crafted, I think, is what he meant, not grafted to become become malware. You can't. Uh, they're not going to involve. Exactly. I got a genetic experiment. I got a bit of a kick at it because we've had some similar questions in the past where where people were worried that that something malicious could sort of happen by mistake. Right. And of course, this is also a variation on, on something we discussed a couple of weeks ago about this notion of of malicious video uploads. Right. And we talked about how, for example, in the process of any kind of transcoding from one format to another or even changing the the size of the file in order to 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 make it a a, a fixed bitrate or a fixed physical you know image size any of that would just blast any malicious stuff into history the same is certainly true with malicious jpegs first of all remember that jpegs are only capable of being malicious if there's a a known and unpatched vulnerability in the JPEG interpreting code, and so there, I mean, there have that has been the case in the past. There, there, it was possible briefly uh, to do malicious JPEGs to to craft malicious JPEGs in Windows um, before you know that known vul- vulnerability was patched as it has been, um, but even so. Any, it's just like with video. Any resizing, reimaging, um, you know, remunging of the JPEG would lose that because inherently the process would would produce a a valid JPEG, and and none of that code would survive. Now, the the one exception might be if there was explicit tagging in the jpeg that would survive you know the the so-called meta tags where you add extra information if if that were to persist through the image or re-imaging of the jpeg then you could imagine that okay that might not be changed by something that was was just changing the resolution or the the um, the level of JPEG compression. So conceivably something could could stay, but he's sort of wondering if it could evolve uh, as a consequence of random changing. That the, and so, so the point I wanted to make there was that, that you know, I mean, okay, um, you know, we've, we've heard the example of a million monkeys all banging on keys randomly on typewriters, and one of them produces, you know, a Shakespearean... Yeah, work, but it's an you infinite know, number of monkeys typing for an, an infinite amount of time. Yeah, and so you got to have an infinite <laughs> amount of patience yeah. too, and read a whole bunch of nonsense garbage. before you end up with Shakespeare, and nearly you know. infinite amount of garbage. <laughs> yes, so so I mean, it's it's virtually impossible that that would happen, while not being absolutely impossible. It's just not the case that that random bit migration would do anything useful. It would just in in the, I mean in the best case it would crash your system rather than do something malicious yeah you know i i think that my daughter's taking statistics this year in high school ap statistics i'm so proud of her and one of the reasons i encouraged her to do it is because i think that we there's a certain amount of uh, uh, john john apollos calls it innumeracy 
it's the numeric form of illiteracy. There's a certain amount of uh, misunderstanding of math and statistics and so forth that goes on. And, uh, and I wanted her to understand it better. And this is an example, um, which is just because it could happen randomly. You have to understand the vast, unlikely, you know, improbability of this. Highly improbable. Well, and, and literally in a block of code, um, one bit that is changed Breaks will, Breaks yes, exactly, will break it. Right. So literally a single bit, you, you, you know, there might be a couple bits in a 4K bit block of code, but, or, or it's, a it's, more reasonable code is, 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 I mean, size is going to be 4K bytes is 64,000 bits. You might have a couple bits you could change that would not collapse the code, but most <laughs> of them you are, you know, absolutely have to be the way they are. It's kind of like so, saying, I'm going to put a bunch of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen molecules in this cocktail shaker and shake it really hard, and maybe a monkey will pop out. <laughs> it's just not, it's not that likely. Okay. That's, uh, yes. And yes, you're right. That's a good example. <laughs> Dennis Wright in the UK. I'm sorry. I don't want to, I'm not being harsh. I, I understand. I don't mean to be laughing at Brian. <laughs> We're not laughing at Brian. The at monkey all. coming out of the cocktail shaker. Right. That's a that's a great visual, Leo. Yeah. Well, it, it, sometimes it takes a good visual to make this stuff. <laughs> it's funny. You know, I, I I'm really think that this is the kind of thing they should be teaching in schools. It's this kind of critical thinking, especially with numbers, because we get lied to a lot when graphs and polls and statistics and the ability to look at that and kind of do some critical thinking and go, that doesn't make sense. Well, and, and actually it is, it is a known, it's a, it's a known fact that people are not very good about statistics. No. That is to say, that is, we don't not think. not intuitive. Exactly. We we do not have an intuition about about probability because it's just not the way we were built. People, for example, assume that if you toss a penny in the air and and we'll we'll give it we'll we'll, we'll state that pennies have an even chance of coming up heads or tails. In fact, there's a slight bias. But but that's but due to the if, weight of the penny. It's not. Yeah. Exactly. And so so the the idea is if you if you throw a penny up in the air and you know you do the heads or tails thing. And and like five times in a row, it comes up heads. There's this there's this intuitive sense which is wrong that we're owed some tails. That <laughs> yeah. Like, that like oh it's my god, if we had five, it? yeah, exactly. Yeah. If we if we have five heads in a row, then whoa, there's like this built up need for us to have some tails coming up. But it just isn't the case. Yeah. In fact, it's extremely unlikely that you'll get five heads in a row. But it can happen. In fact, we know from from binariness that there's a chance of one in 32. So, in fact, it's less unlikely than you might think, because one in 32 odds is not, not that bad. bad. No, you know, it, it, it's like three out of 100. Essentially, it's close to that. Um, so so you're not owed tails just because you've got a <laughs> bunch of heads. But we sort of tend to think, we think you we are feel like it. Yeah. And, and it, it, you hit a hot button, obviously, and and uh, I probably shouldn't belabor it, but I think that it's important. There's a lot of superstitious thinking that goes on because we just don't get this this very well, and you know things like thinking you're going to win the lottery when you have a greater chance of being hit by lightning. You know, we don't understand that. We well, don't. and then well, of course it's annoying because every so often someone does. Well, somebody's like, always oh. going to win it. That's yep. right, <laughs> but it ain't going to be you. <laughs> Sorry, right. the chances are very slim. 
Dennis, it's what built Las Vegas, ladies and gentlemen. Dennis Wright in the UK has been programming web forms too, something like what you've been doing for your e-commerce. He said, I was listening to the fascinating episode on your e-commerce system. I think I may have beaten you to the session management scheme. You, Dennis, and the rest of the world, apparently. Yeah, yeah. But. <laughs> Did you? I don't think I'll have to listen to it again, but I don't think you uh, claimed that you invented this. Nope. I just came up with a solution that works for me. Yeah. I mean, most almost all websites use some form of session preservation using cookies. I mean, that's just kind of common. Uh, anyway, he says, as you were talking, I could see where you're heading because I'd been there myself. I'm an actuary. Interesting. Now, here's a guy who understands statistics. Uh, But he's interested in IT. Some years ago, he created an interactive online retirement modeling system uh, for the place where he worked. I had the same issues. You can't assume cookies or JavaScript are available. And you didn't want an overcooked database solution. So he had the data items, which were few and not needed to be recorded permanently, shuttling back and forth between client and server using the query string and hidden form fields. And that's a good way to do it. I skipped the encryption because the whole thing was running under SSL. No doubt you'll tell me that was a mistake. No, that sounds sensible. Well, I, I wanted to, to put this in here because there were so many people who mentioned the idea uh, that, that I talked about last week not being unique to me. Apparently, there are books on CGI programming that talk about you know maintaining state this way, too. Um, and Most so, programs yes, I, have to solve this problem. State is important in a program. Well, yes, and, and in a client-server well, environment, you have to figure out a way to do this. Exactly. So, so there, there's, there's storing cookies, you know, formal, you know, standard HTTP web cookies on the browser. There's various ways you could use variables in JavaScript, mm-hmm. or you could st- go with standard straight html which is what i did and and just return the contents in a hidden field in the form in order to pass the state back to the browser which it then passes back to the server when the user adds some more information to that form and then resubmits it Mm -hmm. i did i did want to talk about his comment about not using encryption uh because it was running under ssl and he says no doubt you'll tell me that was a mistake well what ssl of course did was for, for for Dennis in this case was it prevented anyone from sniffing the transaction as it was passing back and forth on the line my concern and the reason i encrypted this this blob of data and and then signed it and made sure was that the signing of course verified that it had not been altered because essentially i'm taking all of the state of my e-commerce transaction and handing it you know transporting it out of the server off to a client somewhere now i'm assuming he's on my side that is you know this is his e-commerce transaction after all and you know he wants it to work out well i'm not giving it to some bad person on the other hand i don't know that i can trust this person not to screw around with my server so when i hand them back the blob I don't want them to be able to, A, modify it in any way, um, nor do any sort of, like, delayed replay. Replaying the data in the future is something that I also prevent by putting in a transaction count as part of the encrypted data to, to prevent any kind of a replay attack, nor do I want them to be able to decrypt it, see what's going on, and, you know, figure out anything they might be able to do with it to, you know, mess with GRC or e-commerce or whatever. So 
um, because browsers might be caching those pages, even though I explicitly expire the pages and have no caching tags all over the place, it's theoretically possible. So, and the fact is, there's no no vulnerable data other than the user's own data that they have submitted in the form ever coming back to me because all I'm doing is carrying that through a couple pages. But, you know, I thought, what the heck? I might as well make sure this thing is locked down. So aware of the dangers, even though we, we also have an SSL connection, which is enforced through all this, I thought, I just don't want anyone to, to screw with this. This is my blob, not their blob. <laughs> not your blob. Hands off my blob. So I'm going to encrypt my blob, and I'm going to digitally sign it, and I'm going to put serial numbers in it, and I'm going to do everything I can think of so that, you know, the blob I give you is, is, is you know, is your data, but I've made it mine, and all your browser knows to do is send it back just the way it is, and then I'm going to take a look at it and make sure that everything about it makes sense before I trust it. And that's what I do when the data comes back. I de-blobify it and then look at it, make sure it all makes sense, and then proceed to process that next submission from the user. And it works. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, there. I, I, I think probably any book you look in uh, is going to talk about some way to do this. And cookies are obviously the, the way everybody uses just because it's there. Although apparently Microsoft does have this thing that they, right. that they call state view, which is built into their ASP.net system that makes it very easy for programmers to carry state from page to page in a fashion very much like this. But, so but I'm thinking it's cookies, <laughs> right? I mean, if you're, well, if you're storing be, something, we have to be careful about that word, though, because cookies are sort of a reserved word. Cookies means a a blob stored on the server that's associated with the site. No, on the client. So, on the client. On I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. Erase that. Stored on the client that's associated with the site. So so a cookie is a specific thing. This is this is not a cookie. This is an opaque token which is sent back and it's part of the page itself yeah. okay so it's not stored on the exactly. client side so True. that's the big it's not difference stored on the client that's, it's but, only it's on the page right if it's stored client side it's a, you know co- cookies were created by netscape and they originally were they were called pcssis which is not very catchy uh client side what does it stand for um persistent client side state information and so anything stored on the client as state information, that's a cookie, right? You, uh, you know, but I guess if you're since you're you, you, yours are not persistent, that's the that's the difference. It doesn't persist through the session. Well, and but, you know, there are also non persistent cookies. I think what, right. what the real difference right. is that I'm I'm storing it in the page. So the page that comes back to the user, it's actually in the HTML is this blob which is is a field in the form yes. that I'm next asking them to fill out. Right. And so it just, you know, I'm not having to keep any memory of this on the server at all. Right. When I'm done with it, I send it all back to the user. If they want to continue or, or proceed with the transaction, they, they click on the button or fill out the form or do whatever, and then all of that state information comes back to me as part of the next stage in the transaction. Right. So, it's a session. It's effectively what a session cookie does. 
Which is it, yes. not saved. It's just for the session. Well, except that a session cookie is normally a token that does refer to state information saved on the server. So this the session cookie comes back to the server. Then the server looks up what the the, the, the like the bulky session state ah. that that cookie refers to. Instead. All of that data is what I'm sending back out right. to the browser, right. and it all comes back to me. So I have nothing. So it's so it's so it's not a pointer to data on the server. It's all the data. Well, I mean, I've used session cookies in programming, um, and, and most programming languages support this kind of very cleanly. And essentially, a lot of times, it's just okay. I just pressed a button or something. Lost my audio. Um, a lot of them, it's just you're setting a date or a time, and it's programmatic. I mean, it's it's a hash of something that right. the, that the program then. I mean, it's not like the server is doing a lot of work. Right. Joe Gajowski or Gajowski of Buffalo, New York, is worried he's running on borrowed time. Steve writes these teases, by the way. I just want to give you credit because they're really good. I love security now, says Joe, and I've been listening since day one. I heard you say a few times, Spinrite's going to work on TiVo's. But I own a Dish Network DVR. Can I use Spinrite on my Dish hard drive? He's, uh, you know, his is his is old, and he's, you know, he knows it's going to fail eventually. But he hasn't been able to figure out uh, if the Dish drive can be replaced by anybody but the Dish Network. Why? Uh, what makes it so difficult to clone this hard drive? I'm not concerned with extracting programs; just backing up the drive. So if and when it fails, I can restore it myself. Oh, interesting. Well, it's, it's a great question. Um, I know that DirecTV's DVR is TiVo-based. So DirecTV... Actually, not, no, they have two. One is and one isn't. Oh, okay. They, so they've originally... gone to the company. They've gone to a company DVR as well. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the original ones were, right. so the older ones probably are, um, and that means that they're Linux-based. Right. I don't know anything about Dish Network's DVR, um, but my... I'm absolutely sure that Spinrite could run safely on the hard drive. You're it independent will either... of the file system. You don't care what's the... What... Exactly. Exactly. In fact, in the in the PowerPC TiVos, which are the ones I use, and the, they're, they're the older original ones, the bytes are swapped on the drive so that it just looks like gibberish to Spinrite. Spinrite just tackles it one sector at a time. You know, as fast as it can, and plows through the drive, and it's also able to talk to the drives, uh, the extra ATA or IDE data. You know, the smart data and all that stuff. So it's able to extract that from the drive and monitor it while it's doing this work, regardless of how the drive is formatted or even if it's not formatted at all. You know, like we had, we we talked earlier about some guy who bought a new drive and runs Spinrite on it. Well, he doesn't even have to format the drive to run Spinrite on it. So it's certainly the case if you're able to open up your Dish Network DVR and get at the guts inside that uh, and pull the drive out mounted on a regular PC um, motherboard, you'll be able to run Spinrite with no trouble. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, there. you know, uh, I don't know anything about how Dish does it. I did write a book on the TiVo. And you know they're basically standard drives uh, with and at the at the file system level at the data level there's encryption and blessing and so forth, but uh, Spinrite's not going to be a problem and you should be able to ghost it as long as you use something very low level that's just cop doing a sector copy of it. 
Exactly. In fact, there are a, there are a bunch of Linux commands that, that right. are very good about doing just pure sector by sector copies. In fact, that's what uh, what we do on the TiVo uh, before you mess with it. Yep. <laughs> you, do, yep. you use DD to do a dump of the uh, of the data. I, I think that if you want to read more about this, there are, there's good forums on this subject at dealdatabase.com. It's dealdatabase.com slash forum. And they talk about uh, mostly about TiVo, but they do talk about the dish DVR. It's not as hackable, I know, as the TiVo. But I'm pretty sure you can make an image backup of it. Yep, and in fact, Deal Database is the right place, Leo. That, oh, that's, that's great. You know, that's I've amazing. done extensive hacking of my TiVos, yeah. as, as you know, yeah. and that that is like where I go. But the but nothing was as easy to hack as a Series One. They've gotten so much; it's just they've messed it up, basically. Yep, yep. Which was their intent. William Dittman in Northwest Indiana raises an important point. I just wanted to tap the brakes a little bit on your talk about Verisign's PIP system. The VeriSign system you describe bears an evolutionary resemblance to Passport. We mentioned this. That's the Microsoft single sign-on. While I'm sure VeriSign's been diligent in their system, it's still a federated ID system, which has the side effect of severely impacting privacy and anonymity concerns. If you use this system, you're essentially making VeriSign a party to all your web membership's transactions. In essence, everything is traceable back to me as an individual. While this type of solution is very good for solving the problem of proving who I am... The problem for most people on the Internet is more like proving I'm the one that opened this account and not related to the guy who opened the other account. I think it's important to point out to your listeners that uh, this is actually a concern with these kinds of systems. It's a privacy issue. And it concerns me because federated ID systems grow in popularity and alternatives that may solve the other problem will not be developed. As I see it, federated ID systems are information brokers dream come true. While I know I can create multiple IDs, there's little benefit because an information broker is more capable of managing multiple identities than most people are. He raises an excellent point, which we didn't address, this issue of privacy. Yes, and in fact, I've got on my notes here in my outline for future episodes, coming up very quickly, I'm going to do, we'll really talk about this. Uh, I call it the dark side of open ID because it's not just VeriSign, even open ID has this has this issue that is really worth you know mentioning and talking about and that is that what we've been talking about we're talking about a a three-party system where you've got the end user the site you're wanting to verify yourself to and then a third party that provides this centralized credential verification service i mean the the value of it is that you're able to authenticate yourself with a single site. The problem is, in this scenario, the as we'll remember as we talk about OpenID, you're authenticating with – well, you're, you're going to a site you want to log on to. Then, then that site sends your browser to this third-party um, – well, as to, to use William's word, ID Federation site, and then it gets uh, – so you verify yourself with that site. Then your browser is sent back to the, the site you want to authenticate to, and then that site checks in with the Federation server to verify that this all went as your browser says it did. The point is that that, that single – point of contact is the value of using a system like this, but it's the vulnerability because just as we've talked about, for example, using third-party cookies and, and, and web ads where you're able to be tracked on the internet, essentially 
whatever server you use for OpenID, whether it's VeriSign or any other system, that server knows you because you've established an account and some and some sort of identity with it, and it knows every place you log on to using it because it has to have a connection as, as part of the protocol to the site you're logging on to. Now, what's very cool is there are solutions to that, which we'll be talking about in the future. There are ways for for identity to be verified that don't use this like this this uh, lover's triangle essentially, where everybody has to know everybody else in this in this three party system. There are ways to avoid that, but OpenID doesn't do it, um, so it's something to be conscious of. So what are the other ways? <laughs> now you now you opened up a whole new. Oh, it's subject. very cool stuff, Leo. Let's do another subject. Oh yeah, it, believe me, it's not about. something we can talk about now. Okay. It, there are there there there's, there's a category of techniques known as zero knowledge proofs, uh-huh. where you're able to prove that you know something without giving away any right. of what it is you know. I remember these uh, uh, going back a ways. Actually, there was some systems to do that, yep. and and you know what. Uh, our our correspondent may be right. William might be right that that all the attention on these uh, single sign on solutions may have eclipsed interest in these uh, zero knowledge solutions. And as a matter of fact, that was one of the things that he said that I that I did want to point out. I'm glad I'm glad you brought us back to it. I think that was a very salient point he made, yeah. and that is that that by by the, this growth in popularity of something like OpenID and and Verisign's PIP solution, which you know it's here, it works, it's it's easy to get excited it's about convenient. it. But it it it's very convenient. But recognize that you know there are some privacy privacy aspects to it that you just need to be aware of. Again, I'm not saying that it's like oh no, this is evil and bad. It's just like just you know recognize that that's what's going on. Yeah. Yep. Uh, boy, somebody's mad at you. He he says you're extremely arrogant, Steve. I uh, know. <laughs> I don't even want to read this. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, all right. You're you're very patient. I chose it. You did, Steve. This is uh, somebody from North Carolina who does not give their name, and you'll see why. Steve, why don't you? I'm going to read it in his uh, character here. Why don't you put your e-commerce system up for sale? There are a lot of people out there who'd kill to have such a secure e-commerce system other than PayPal and Google Checkoff, Checkout, and not offering it up for sale is extremely arrogant. I believe that e-commerce is the future, but most e-commerce systems these days are exactly how you described them. Not everyone has a sophisticated e-commerce system, so they use the next best thing, PayPal. Heck, I'd tell my friend who runs a pet supply website to use your system and to make things much easier on her because she had a really bad security issue with PayPal. Long story short, she got caught in a PayPal scam. If more websites use secure e-commerce systems like yours, it'd make things about 3,000 times easier on everybody. Please excuse my annoyance. But I can't stand it when something goes far better, comes along, and the guy or gal invented it says, oh, I'm not offering it for sale. There. I'm done. Well, Signed anonymous. <laughs> um, I really didn't mean to come across arrogantly. Um, but it's the case that that I have a model for GRC which is working. Um, I really have an individual end user orientation. That is what what I like to do is solve problems for the listeners of our podcast. Um, and I've got nothing against 
against pet supply stores. but but can but i answer prob- this for you <laughs> <laughs> the problem is that i mean and, and I, i've had other friends who've said hey steve why don't you just charge two dollars no, for all no, of your freeware no, instead no. of giving it away for free yeah. and, and the problem is there there are you know money is not free there's you you, you pay a price you for do. doing these things and there, there's just it's not practical to to sell freeware for two dollars um it, it just it doesn't make any sense. Similarly, on sort of the other side of the scale, it's just not practical for me to sell an e-commerce system. You know, we would probably sell maybe 10 copies, yet it would take me a year to package it and and support it and document it and and add all the features that other people would want. You know, I wrote something that works just perfectly for me for me and and not as a general purpose solution so the fact is it it wouldn't work for other people for example i imagine that pet supplies need to be shipped somewhere but i don't do taxes on my system because software is a non-taxable non-taxable transaction and so i don't have to worry about dealing with with collecting tax worrying about what county people are in in california sales tax differs depending upon what street you 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 live on i mean it's a real nightmare so you know i wrote something specifically for grc that works perfectly for us and you know i'm i wanted to share the 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 problems i encountered and the solutions i came up with as as part of this but you know it just that's it, it would be such a different problem offering a solution for sale than it was just for our own purposes. Now, I'm no objectivist. I'm no randist. But I, this is a perfect this letter is a perfect example of what Ann Rand talks about. Uh, just because somebody is capable of writing a system like this doesn't mean he owes it to everybody else. It's it's non-trivial to take Steve's what, um, what you just said, which is it's non-trivial to take your system and and make it available and it changes his whole life suddenly your business is selling an e-commerce system and you have to support it you have to keep it up to date you have to i mean it's you if you choose not to make that your business i don't think anybody has any right to expect anything else of you so i you know i I don't think it's arrogant in the least i think in fact it's the opposite it's arrogant for anybody to say well just because somebody has something or can do it he has the right to give it to everybody else or the obligation or the obligation yeah. Not, not right. Yes. Obligation. Um, I'm not. A, I, again, I'm not an Ayn Rand f- nut, but that's an example of that, why I, where objectivism is absolutely right on. You're a uh, you're you're it, write it yourself, folks. <laughs> you, know, you want something better? Do it yourself. And, and in last episode, I told you how. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like Steve's hiding stuff. By the way, do recommend you go to GRC.com slash security now and read the show notes for 109 because he's put the. Uh, some source code on there. And I just think that's just a work of art. Oh, thank you. Uh, I just, I mean, it's really, one of my favorite books of all time is called Programmers at Work. It was a, it's, I'm sure out of print right now is Microsoft. It's a great Press. book. I Do have you remember that? Too. Yep. And one of the things, it talks to all these great, you know, famous programmers, like Gates is in there, Bill, Charles Simonyi of Microsoft, just these great programmers. Wozniak. Wozniak. And it gives code samples. And they talk, they talk about their craft. And it's just, it's inspiring to read what these great artists do. Um, and, uh, and, and when I look at your code, it reminds me very much of that. It's just, it's just a work of art. 
it's a programming is wonderful. If, if nothing else, I think in the last episode, you might have inspired some people to turn to programming because it, it, oh, I, we actually did have some feedback from people who who looked at the screenshot of a, of a chunk of code from Bam Bam where I deal with with the way I handle um, encrypting and decrypting the 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 PayFlow Pro password, which is what we use as our merchant services for credit card clearing, because I didn't want the password to be sitting in the registry where if anything ever crawled into the server, it would be able to see that. Right. So the the user can the the actual administrator, you know, me, I put the password in in the clear. The first time the e-commerce system starts up, if it sees that it's in the clear, it encrypts it and then puts it back encrypted and then it gets it and decrypts it. So it's just a cool Maybe. little, you know, bit of code, but we did have a lot of people, I mean a, su- a surprising number who said, "Wow, I didn't realize that assembly code could look that way. Um I'm going to go take a look at it again." Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. It's fun writing this. I've written some stuff in Assembler. It's very satisfying. George in Texas, because you're because it's bare metal. You're, yep. you're right there with the machine. George in Texas wonders about the security of Tor, the Onion router. He says he saw saw an article on Ars Technica about a security researcher who used five Tor exit nodes to collect logon passwords from unencrypted traffic. What's the deal? I thought Tor was safe. I'm going to add something to this because we've we've now heard reports of uh, at least one, I think, two Tor administrators. One, uh, one tour administrator in Germany who was subpoenaed by the German authorities, they took his machine and all the information on that machine. Uh, of course, the authorities had no clue what to do with it. In fact, they, it, was, it was worthless to them. But uh, it does raise the issue of people can, can get these individual machines. Does that compromise Tor? Well, and in fact, uh, the guy you're talking about in Germany, this was the second time he had been harassed right. by, by the government. And he, he said, I'm sorry, but I'm no longer going to be able to host an endpoint node on the Tor system because of the problems that it creates. And by so, the way, the, 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 the German police get nothing from this. They're at the wrong point. Well, so, okay, so let's explain what's going on here. Um, first of all, uh, this rather irresponsible security researcher. I mean, I'm. Uh, it, it, it's uh, www.derangedsecurity.com. What? Um, I, I consider him a little irresponsible, yeah. maybe a lot irresponsible. <laughs> I should tell you something, just the name. Yeah, deranged security. Um, because he was running, um, he, he runs a bunch of Tor nodes, and he specifically wrote a packet sniffer to find high value email logon credentials that is username and passwords um for for example governments and embassies and and other high value targets he put these sniffers on five tor servers and they collected thousands of email name logon password combinations then, because he didn't feel that anyone would take this seriously unless a lot of noise was made, he published these these things that he had gathered publicly on the basis that, first, nobody would pay attention to this problem otherwise, and that, um, well, these were all in the clear anyway, traveling around the Internet, so what's the big deal? Well, the big deal was the U.S. government immediately stomped on him and had his site taken down 
all kinds of people were really upset. And essentially, he, he published the email logons for a bunch of, of embassy, you know, government embassy email accounts, and a whole bunch of problems uh, resulted, as you can imagine. But so, underlying that, did he point up a security issue? No, what he what he did was and this is valuable. The reason I wanted to to put this question up, first of all, a lot of people picked up on it and wrote to us about this. So I wanted to to address it directly. What Tor does is it anonymizes users of the internet. It does not provide end-to-end security, meaning that for example, SSL, Secure Sockets Layer, we've talked about often. It provides end-to-end security, mm-hmm. meaning that when I use when a when when a GRC customer buying Spinrite wants to buy buy Spinrite, the first thing that happens is an SSL connection is created, securing all of their traffic from from their machine to the GRC server and back, so nothing can be seen. Tor doesn't provide encryption except between Tor server nodes. But on the final node, after your traffic has bounced around between Tor servers, where it is encrypted and the Tor protocol makes it extremely hard to backtrack, once it finally is done bouncing around ping ping pong around Tor nodes, the final Tor node decrypts it the last time, essentially takes it out of the final encryption envelope, peels that layer off the onion, so to speak, and the traffic is then emitted or injected onto the Internet in the clear, that is, as plain text. So the mistake that these embassy people were making is they may have believed that their all of their traffic was encrypted by using this system when in fact all that was being done was they were being anonymized meaning that that potentially they could not be backtracked on the other hand their email had you know their client IP and server name and everyone knew anyone who looked at this would know where they were logging on to and what was going on and all their email even was in the clear apparently the actual content of their email so so he just so, pointed out how insecure their system was really well he pointed out that people were using Tor for the wrong reason yeah they okay. were they were assuming that, they were secure it, they were assuming that exactly that it was providing them absolute security on the net when in fact all it was really doing all it was meant to do is to provide anonymity services now the reason are the guy in germany has gotten into trouble several times is that is it, it was for child pornography that he was he was arrested what happened was that government officials were tracking back the ip of somebody who apparently was pulling child pornography off of a child pornography site. Well, this this child pornography viewing end user was using the Tor system to provide him or her with anonymity for this web surfing that they were doing. And what happened was the 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 child porn 
IP was terminating on this Tor endpoint where it then became encrypted and was then anonymized. So somebody on the outside of, of the Tor system saw that some that that this node was apparently making these child porn queries when in fact they were being made on behalf of somebody using the Tor system for anonymity and you can't blame them in this case for wanting to be anonymous. I mean, they, they understood clearly that this was what Tor was used for. So the authorities went to this endpoint and arrested this guy, unfortunately. He did nothing wrong except he was running a Tor node endpoint. And this, in fact, is the great danger of running Tor node endpoints. It's actually, there. there's a double-edged sword here. If you run the, the, the endpoint, then people on the net will believe that it's your machine which is making these queries of potentially bad stuff, when in fact your machine is making them on behalf of somebody who wants to be anonymous specifically because they want to do things which, you know, are in, in many cases in many uh, countries and, and locations illegal to do. The other side of this is that all of the traffic which is coming and going from that endpoint can be scrutinized by anyone running the endpoint. And in fact, something that is useful is that this deranged security guy has a list of example <laughs> exit nodes that can read your traffic. Ah. And so he says nodes named Devil Hacker and Hacker's Haven, node hosted by an illegal hacker group, major nodes hosted anonymously to get dedicated to Tor by the same person or organization in Washington, D.C., each of these are handling 5 to 10 terabytes of data every month. A node hosted by Space Research Institute slash Cosmonauts Training Center controlled by the Russian government. Wow. Nodes the Russian government runs a Tor node. Yeah. Wow. Nodes hosted on several government-controlled academies in the U.S., Russia, and around Asia. Wow. Nodes hosted by criminal identity stealers. Nodes hosted by Ministry of Education in Taiwan uh, you know, run by China. Mm. Node hosted by major stock exchange company and Fortune 500 financial company. Hmm. Nodes hosted anonymously on dedicated servers for Tor, costing the owner between $100 and $500 every month, meaning presumably they're getting some value in return right, for right, hosting right. the node. Right. Nodes hosted by the Chinese, by Chinese government officials. <sighs> Nodes in over 50 countries with unknown owners and nodes handling over 10 terabytes of data every month. So the point is that, you know... 10 people, terabytes? Yeah. People are, are using Tor to do things anonymously, but you're using... You, the, the, when the traffic egresses from the Tor network, you don't know who owns the node that it's egressing from, and nor do you know what purpose they're using the node for. Hmm. So it's worth mentioning that, you know, once your data egresses the Tor system, it is no longer encrypted. Um, it has been anonymized as the Tor system provides, but 
depending upon what you're doing, you may still be giving your identity away. And, you know, people of unknown uh, ambition and goal could be looking at it. I think that's the bottom line. The really most important thing takeaway from this is that Tor is for anonymity, not encryption. Yes. Dave Solon in uh, Amish country, Mannheim, PA, has a tip for our listeners. He says, uh, thanks for mentioning the PayPal, eBay security key. As soon as you did, I snapped one up at uh, $5, a great deal. I've been using it in the past week with no problems. Today, I couldn't get on eBay. I kept asking for a key number. I kept pushing the button, kept entering the new numbers. He tried PayPal, same problem. PayPal, however, lets you enter two sequential key numbers and then let me in. I almost disabled the key, but decided to try something at eBay. I remember you saying you could enter your password. It then prompts you for the key number. I did that. It prompted me for my key number. I entered it, and voila, I was in. Huh. So I just wanted to mention this experience and hope it may help others with the same problem. Thanks again for your great show. Love Security Now and This Week in Tech. Can I pull a Dvorak and plug k12geek.com slash blog? Yes, you may. <laughs> I checked it out. It's a nice little blog. And so, although it's a slow blog, so if too many people who are listening go there, but it's for, you know, K-12 interested stuff. Um, he must be a teacher. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so relative to um, PayPal and eBay and the key, it sounds to me, and this is just decoding what he said, as though maybe eBay has some sort of problem with the password key number concatenation. Mm. Remember that you are able to enter your username, and then in the password field, you, you type your password and immediately add the current six digits showing mm-hmm. on your token. Right. By the way, Leo, I've decided to formally call these tokens now. I like the name token. That's good. They're tokens, not a fob. Not, not fob, a dongle. Dongle and everything else. They are tokens. Um, so, um, so what may happen is that there's some sort of a parsing problem on the way eBay's servers are handling this. So I did want to pass this tip on to our listeners, much as, as Dave has suggested. If you don't uh, append the six characters to the end of your password, then you will be prompted for it in a next stage, and as Dave reports, that allowed him to get through and get it logged on to eBay. So just a little tip, and maybe it's a function of his password. If his password had some digits at the end uh, of it, I'm just thinking that now, uh, that might be the reason that he had a problem. Yeah, so Yeah, he might always have to do it that way. It could confuse I, eBay. I've never had any trouble with it concatenating. I don't use it on eBay, though, so I don't know. Yeah, and nor have I. It's worked for me every time I've yeah, used it. Yeah. Anish in Vestal, New York, has a RAID question. RAID 1 is supposed to protect against catastrophic drive failure, right? In the event that a drive fails completely, the other drive is still available as an up-to-date copy. This is the striped RAID as opposed to... Actually, that's mirroring. Oh, RAID 1 is mirroring. Yeah. Uh, RAID 0 is striped where you get twice the size. What am I saying? Mirroring, of course. Yep. Yep. What happens if the initial drive failure is a slow, gradual process of an increasing number of unreadable sectors? Wouldn't these bad sectors also be copied over to the RAID 1 drive making it unreadable too. And what about running spin right? What if it corrected bad sectors on one drive and not the other? Could that render the RAID configuration useless? It was sort of an interesting question that I hadn't uh, thought about or run into before. Uh, the good news is RAID 1, that is mirroring, will do the right thing. The idea is you've got a, you've got a controller, the so-called RAID controller, which will 
read from both drives, um, normally it's reading different data. If it's a smart controller and you make an access, the like for some block of sectors, the RAID controller may read the first half of the block from one drive and the second half of the block from the other so that it's able to get twice, in theory, twice the reading um, performance. When you write data, it then writes the same data back to both drives. But what this means is if in, if in um, Anisha's instance or example, one drive was failing to offer sectors that were being requested, the RAID controller simply asks for those sectors it could not get from the first drive. Get it, that, I mean, that's the whole point of having a, a so-called mirror. You have a mirror image of the second drive, and it will then pull those sectors from the second drive, and anything written will still be written together to both drives. So there is no way for unreadable sectors on one drive to contaminate those sectors on the other. What we suggest people do when they want to run SpinWrite on a RAID is to, to temporarily take the drives off of the RAID, that is just you know remove them from the RAID controller, stick them on the motherboard, normal non-RAIDed controller, and run SpinWrite on each drive individually. The problem is it doesn't make spin it doesn't make sense to run spinwrite on the raid while it's still in a mirroring configuration because for example those unreadable sectors would be deliberately obscured by the raid being a raid by by it doing what it wants to do which is they'd always be readable the, the good data from the other drive right. exactly so so in this case you really you want to remove that redundancy and that that error correction by design from between from from, from being an um, an intermediary between the drive and spinwrite you want to give spinwrite direct access to the drive so it's able to fix things up and 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 also show the drive where it's got problems so that the, the drive can relocate those bad sectors so it, so if you corrected that or one of the two arrays and then put it back into the raid array it wouldn't screw up the raid array somehow it wouldn't correct because spinwrite will will never change the data on the drive. So it will not break your mirror. Huh. Interesting. You, and you've done this. Oh, yeah. We've got users doing it all the time. It's just, uh, for some reason, it seems counterintuitive to me. Like, it's somehow there's going to, it's going to, anything that changes that first drive is going to confuse the array. Ah, because it's not changing the physical but sectors. It, but it might move a sector around, right? Well, no, it would, in sparing it out, it puts a new good sector in the same location. So it never does move the data to a different sector number. It changes the sector underneath the data. Hmm. Okay. It's very, very cool the way it works. All right. I guess that makes sense, yeah. (laughs) Dale in Saginaw, Michigan, quite frustrated. When I went to log into a major credit card bank today, it insisted I provide the answers to three personal questions. I get this all the time. Uh get this all the time it drives me crazy too it is is it not enough that sometimes i don't know the answers to any of the questions it offers so today when i finished giving and recording the answers to three of the questions i click continue i received this reply please note there was a technical problem in our system that prevented our storing the answers to your security questions Ugh. since we were unable to record them today we will ask you to select a new set of security questions at another time you will not need to remember exactly what you had entered here we sincerely apologize for the inconvenience I'd change banks. Uh-huh. That's it. 
Has anyone ever considered that this whole process is just a continuing escalation? The more private information we give to all those databases, the harder it will be for us to verify information that someone else doesn't already know or have access to. Why don't I just give them my FOB number and be done with it? I don't know what an FOB number is. I think he's talking about a FOB. Oh, my FOB number. Yeah, he's talking oh, about, you know. We've changed the termination, termina- terminology. It's now a key. It's now a token. <laughs> so I've had this, I have, this happens to me anytime the bank just feels like it just decides it's an, you know, for any apparent reason, it'll ask me these questions again. And I never get them right. You know, the first thing that occurred to me was if I got something that said, there was a technical problem with our system that prevented our storing the sign. answers, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, I would make sure I was not being fished. Oh. Because, I mean, certainly oh. it's the case. I mean, it could be that something's wrong with their server. But seems, seems it could like also, you're right, yeah. It could also be that somebody wanted to get information from you that, right. that they might be able to use in the future. But since they weren't actually talking to the real server, they weren't able to store that information on this credit card banking location. So, I mean, I'm, again, I'm not, I mean, it's certainly the case, possibly, that there was a technical problem. But if you get something like this, as a Security Now That's listener, it is your duty, it is your duty as a Security Now listener to d- run through the, you know, the things you would tend to do to make sure you are not being fished, meaning you might Try to go back to that prior page. Make sure by that, that you have an SSL connection. Verify the certificate and follow the chain of trust on the certificate back to somebody that it makes sense um, to to have have to have signed that certificate. You know, not the Hong Kong post office, but um, you know. Sorry, actually, I'm kidding there. <laughs> That's <but> probably safe, but <laughs> that actually, probably is. But yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the, uh, I would. When I, if I got something like that on a banking site, it would immediately raise a red flag, not yeah. just that their, that their database was screwed up and they needed better programmers on their server, but eh, just make sure little phishing is not going on. And maybe, in fact, you know, uh, make sure that's really the site that you were on. Um, but again, uh, certainly I agree with, with Dale's point, and that is that this kind of nonsense is is in fact spreading personal information around and we know that it's not it's not safe to tell everyone the name of your first pet or your favorite high school teacher or you know the, although the, i should point out you don't have to give it the same answer every time you just have to keep track of what you told it exactly probably would be prudent not to my right. my favorite pet changes every time <laughs> I have a lot of them, but then you have to keep track of it somehow. Oh, and then it's worse than passwords. It's worse than passwords. Uh-huh. Hey, we're going to pause before we go to question 13, which is kind of a wacky one, and I, and I look forward to it. But I want to remind everybody uh, that Security Now is, as always, brought to you by the good folks at Astaro. I, uh, I just have a soft spot in my heart for those good people. Astaro makes great, really great security hardware. They're Astaro Security Gateway. It's actually hardware and software. They're really quite famous for their uh, their software, which you can download as, an, uh, uh, as a non-commercial user and put on any computer. You can eat even one of the top VMware appliances is the Astaro Security Gateway. But really, what you want to look at if you're a business is the Astaro Security Gateway hardware-software combination. It's a best-of-breed of open-source and commercial software giving you a complete set of security tools. I mean, you get everything, intrusion protection, firewall, uh, remote access and VPN using SSL as well as 
of course, IPsec, L2TP, PPTP. Uh, you get complete filtering, three kinds of filtering. You get two kinds of email virus filtering. You get content filtering, antivirus for the web, as well as email. You get transparent encryption for your desks. So all your users you can be using encrypted email using uh, SMIME or OpenPGP, and you, and, but they don't even know it. It just happens automatically. I mean, it just uh, the list goes on. This is a really great solution. And as you get bigger, so does Astaro. Astaro has a unique brand of active-active clustering that enables the load distribution for as many as 10 Astaro gateways uh, to, together, eliminating the need for additional load balancing and so forth. It's patent-pended technology uh, that increases the speed and reliability of network traffic. It's a solution that grows with you, and it is great. For a free trial of an Astaro security gateway in your business, call 877-427-8276. That's 877-4-A-S-T-A-R-O. There are a lot of names in this space, but let me tell you, there is one and only one that we recommend. It's Astaro. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. Great supporters of security now. You know that means they've got a real commitment to your security. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. Are you ready, Steve Gibson, for the last <laughs> it's question? Wacky number thirteen. <laughs> you know we should do this every time. I think so. If we have wacky ones, I I, I love the idea. Well, we're going to get them now. This is from an anonymous listener in Arkansas because we don't want to name names. I've been thinking about this since your TrueCrypt episode. After I heard that episode, I downloaded and installed TrueCrypt. We recommend it. It's a free encryption program for Windows. While going through the process of setting up an encrypted volume, TrueCrypt complained that my standard password wasn't long enough. Okay. I complied. I created a longer password I thought I could remember. And there's a big word, thought. Weeks later, I went back and tried to mount the volume I'd created. I wasn't able to remember the password. Now, fortunately, there wasn't anything of value in that volume, but it got me thinking, how do I go about securing my digital documents with some kind of securely complex password that I wouldn't be able to forget? Also, what if I have head trauma? And can't remember. Or worse yet, what if I die and my family needs access to my documents? Which is a really important question. Here's what I came up with. Oh, boy. (laughs) A tattoo. You really wrote this, Leo. I'm not making this up. Not just any tattoo, my friends. A blacklight tattoo. My idea is to take one of your generated passwords and have it tattooed on a rarely exposed part of my body with ultraviolet ink. This would... (laughs) Talk about a private key. (laughs) This would allow me to always have my password with me, but it wouldn't be visible in normal light. I also thought it'd be good to split the password up into eight, eight character chunks all over his body. And then he could create passwords out of different chunks. And all he'd have to remember is like wrist, toe, ankle. And he'd have a good password. Steve, what are you talking about? This is a brilliant idea. He says, I know it's not good for a spy or someone hiding from the government, but I'd like to hear what you think for your average Joe that wants to keep his tax return private. Love the show. Now, I'm sure it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but that's an interesting idea. Okay. Um. <laughs> well, um, you could, the problem can is you, you can't change your can password. You Im- uh, can you imagine you go to the GRC Perfect Passwords page and get one of those 64-character nightmares and then chop it up into eight eight-character chunks? See, that's what's inspired and, to me. And then maybe like an eight-by-eight eight block. And then you f- go to your local tattoo parlor yeah. and say, okay, do you have any UV ink? And- <laughs> Here's what I want. Now, okay, you have to trust uh, your tattoo guy. Oh, you sure do. Oh, and you know what you can do is you go to eight like, different what? tattoo guys. 
what kind of a loon? Uh, oh, yeah, good point. Because yeah. you no, yeah. but the problem is the the eighth tattoo guy. In order to tattoo you with UV ink, you need ones. to do it under black light. Yeah. So he'd be seeing. Well, you keep your pants up. on. Ah, that's oh, no. That, now this is a reason you're right, Leo, for putting them in different locations. Right. So you say, okay, now I want you to tattoo these eight characters on the bottom exactly. of my left foot. Yep. And the other guy does it on the bottom of my right foot. Yep. And you know, in my left armpit, I guess you'd have to shave for this. Um, <laughs> I'm not thinking it's such a bad idea, Steve Gibbs. I might just do this. Quite strange. It's better than getting Leo. the Nike swoosh tattooed on your hip. Oh. Got it, and then and then when you come when it comes to actually you know mount your decrypt your you I mean your your true crypt oh, volume. Excuse me, I have to take off my my pants here. To you have to well, you ha- depending upon how secure your password is, you <laughs> might have to completely disrobe in order to get access and find an ultraviolet light. Yeah, that's a very good yeah. point. Might be easier just to write this down. Yes, I. Uh, anyway, it's a uh, it's an interesting thought um <laughs> it's i my mind it's just actually the real problem is it's too permanent well exactly it's very permanent that, that, that's the other thing that i thought of you know very much like a retina scan or yeah. an iris print and or or, or or fingerprint it is something that's very permanent also there aren't that many permutations of eight by eight you know what is it? Uh, you know, eight times seven times six times five times four times three times right, two right. is the number of possible sequences of eight chunks. So, um, if you got knocked on the head or died, first of all, you'd have you'd have to explain to your attorney, I guess. Okay, now if anything happens to me, <laughs> look under my look at the take, corpse. <laughs> take all my clothes off. Shave my shave my armpits. Uh, Get a black light, and and here's the sequence. Oh, you, know, you better hope you don't sag. Right, right foot, left foot, right pit, left pit, and then uh, on so. there. So, anyway, I did want to share that because this actually was posted uh, by a listener in Arkansas. I and, love uh, it. I think it's hysterical, and I'm sure he's tongue in cheek when he wrote it, but it's very funny. It's uh, definitely an interesting concept. This is why we love our listeners, and uh, I look forward to these Q&A sessions. Why I couldn't stop reading them today, Leo. (laughs) I love them. Steve, it's so much fun. I do thank you so much for uh, joining us, as always, and talking about security. Uh, And I congratulate you once again on making the very best, the very best uh, podcast, tech podcast in the nation, in the world. Let's say in the world. I'm just annoyed that, that Twit... And MacBreak Weekly and Security Now. Basically, a bunch of your podcasts are all in the same category, so we had to fight each other in order to get this. Um, it's just, you know, I wish there were <laughs> a different arrangement of podcasts. But uh, again, I thank our listeners. They are the ones who made it happen. And uh, I'd, hopefully they'll do it again next year. <laughs> okay. They will. I'm sure they will. Yeah, it's great. Well, we kind of own the category, I would I would say. And I've got to say, Leo, among all of these emails that I'm reading, there are so many people who are saying, please, please, please never stop. Never, never, ever, never stop doing this weekly podcast. They are loving it. That's so, a life sentence. Uh, <laughs> rest assured, listeners, we're enjoying it. So it's fun for us, too. All right. Hey, Steve, a great pleasure. Uh, we'll do this again next week. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security now.